This season of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Seedlip founder Ben Branson wanted a seat at the bar regardless of the fact that he wasn't drinking alcohol. And so he set off to solve the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking. Drawing inspiration from an ancient book on the art of distillation, which was written in 1651, Ben experimented in his kitchen until he found a way to create flavorful, botanical, non-alcoholic spirits, and thus he created a drink for every drinker. Sample Seedlip for yourself at seedlipdrinks.com, where you can use the code SOBERCURIOUS to get 20% off your purchase, and follow at SeedlipSocial on Instagram for recipes, events, and more. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about living a more conscious, connected and present life. I'm your host, Ruby Warrington, and my guest this week is Yersa Daly Ward, a writer, actor and model who is best known for her debut poetry collection, Bone, and her critically acclaimed poetic memoir, The Terrible, which came out in 2018. This was around the time that I first discovered Yersa's work, and I noticed that within her writings on mental health, sexuality, love, and grief, addiction was a common theme. I got the sense that here was somebody who was not only willing, but who also saw the value in exposing the underbelly of our relationship to alcohol and other substances, and to acknowledge the role that they play in the good, the bad, and the terrible things that we live through. And I've been trying to get her on my podcast ever since. We finally met a few months ago at my apartment in Brooklyn. Like me, Yersa is a Brit in NYC, and I love talking to her about everything from being raised by her devout Seventh-day Adventist grandparents in the small town of Chorley in the north of England, to her substance use and abuse, and the cornerstones of her subsequent sobriety. This is Yersa Daily Ward. Yes, sir. Welcome to the Sober Curious podcast. Hi, Ruby. (laughs) I'm so happy we're doing this. Um, We were chatting before we got on to the recording and I was sharing how I started following your work about two years ago. And I think even around then, you know, immediately reached out to your your quote unquote people. (laughs) I'd really love to interview Yes, sir, for for my book. I think maybe even at the time it was for my book, Sober Curious, Mm. because... in the interviews that I'd read about your work, I noticed that you were talking about, or you were mentioning sort of the subject of substance abuse and mm-hmm. sobriety and your ambivalence about this. But I couldn't really get a handle on whether you were sober, whether you were thinking about it. But I was there were these tantalizing glimpses yeah. into the role that substances have played in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess to begin, I'd just love if you could share, yeah, a bit about where you're at with with that now sure well uh, the reason why you probably uh, wasn't it, it probably wasn't that clear is because i think that the time that bone came out the first book i was not i mean i, I consider myself sober now um, but i wasn't sober at that time but i always like to write about true things about you know the way that things feel and you know i wanted to talk about how alcohol or any other substance really did that thing that that can make us feel you know larger than ourselves that can make us feel like you know the inhibitions are melting away and you can somehow become better and more powerful and I experienced that really really strongly all all the time Mm. and and so it was something that you know I wanted to talk about and even now I talk about it uh, from 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 a different side um, from you know the side of of sobriety and Mm. 
and yeah, that's where I am now. <laughs> so right, exactly. It has been over that sort of like what two, three year yeah. period that you've really yeah. been in that questioning, that sober sure. curious zone. Yeah. Of there's this substance, and it plays mm. such a huge role in our lives, and it brings us supposedly these things that we all desire and crave absolutely a sense of I love the way you described it a sense of being larger than being, life yeah larger than the confines of the life that we somehow find ourselves right. sort of stuck in okay right? yeah the smallness of life yeah yeah and larger than your body like yeah. this you know you, you feel as though you can you'd be funnier you know wittier more happy you know with this thing coursing through your your, mm. you know, your body mm. and, and you know really it's just you which is mm. what I'm coming to understand understand now mm. but it's you know if you're used to that especially being from England <laughs> I'm sure you know about that you know we're yes. raised on it yes yeah we're raised on it and we are also and this is I want this is my on my talking points for like further down the further down but we're also I think um I feel as a, a Brit who now lives in America I can look back on the kind of culture that I was raised in yeah. and see that it was quite restrictive mm. to that large self, that large, perhaps more expressive, more feeling, more um, intuitive, slightly wilder self yeah. wasn't allowed as much freedom in the culture of Britishness. Yeah, I, I completely am with you there. <laughs> I mean, the, we are, I think, over the water a lot more kind of... What, I mean repressed i want to say repressed people say reserved, reserved. right but i wonder what that that's there's degrees of separation there <laughs> yeah but then in some ways we're really not so yeah, yeah. exactly yeah we can get i do i, I will come back to that mm-hmm. but for now i mean i'd love to begin by actually hearing a bit about your booze story like how what you what you grew up understanding about alcohol how sure. it first sort of started to show up in your life at what kind of age what did it what did it seemingly give to you when you first started using alcohol okay so I was brought up actually in a very strict religious household I was brought up by my grandparents and there was none of you know we didn't even drink caffeine Mm. you know or so it was it was very very strict and of course there was no there was no booze um, around the age of eight, I got um, word that my father, who I'd never met, had passed away, and it was because of, of liver failure. So, first of all, my initial understanding of, of, of alcohol is that it, it kills you, and that you know people who drink, you know, will eventually you know become really really ill, and you know it, it, it can make you pass away mm. and uh and so, so I had that understanding very very strongly and nobody on my mother's side which is the side I grew up with drank mm. and, and my mum I think had the occasional you know bit of um like Tia Maria in her coffee maybe and that was it that was it I for me the first time I remember the first time I remember drinking I would have been around 14 uh, and that was just it the, my first few drinks um, white lightning cider which <laughs> I saw that you you talk about in your book as well but that was you know it was readily available it was in these huge huge bottles and then we used to drink it in the park mm-hmm. and we would drink it in the park and it, that that feeling of being just just so invincible 
kind of started for me very, very strongly. The other thing I'll add is that when I was 14, I looked like I was like a, a 22-year-old woman. So it was very easy for me to walk in and, and get booze. Right. Really, really easy. And did that help you become... Like, did that give you a role within your kind of friendship Absolutely. group? Absolutely. No one else looked, looked that old. And yeah. It, of course, it, you know, it was something that you could do to to have friends, to make people respect you. You know, I was also the only black girl in a, in a mm. very white, very um, working class uh, town. And so, yeah, that was currency. Yeah. Absolutely. So not only could I, could I drink this, this like elixir of, <laughs> of you know, power, mm. I, I could also procure it. I could, I could give it to everybody as well. Or, you know, take their money, go in the spa. Buy it. Yeah, right. The spa. The, the spa. spa is not a wellness emporium. The spa in the UK is like oh, yeah. quite a sort of like it's like a cheap corner shop, yeah. kind of supermarket type like a place. Seven Eleven. Yeah, like yeah. a Seven Eleven, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting. I think that largeness you're describing, that invincibleness, it's um there's a degree of freedom, right? And I wonder if coming from growing up in quite a strict religious family environment you felt a sense of being able to take more a slightly more ownership over who you were and like what sure. you wanted when you were able, when your inhibitions had been disabled by alcohol and your perhaps yeah. your perception had been opened in a way yeah i well i always had this feeling in within the the kind of i don't want to say within the confines of that that religion i always had the sense that i wasn't quite good mm. enough or godly enough to, to stick to, to those rules. So, that, you know, there, was, there were all kinds of, of other desires and other, other feelings that were always going on anyway. And alcohol just lifted the veil. Yeah. Because once I, once I, you know, kind of imbibed the, 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 the substance, I was like, you know, I felt more of myself. Mm. That was the, the thing. Mm. I felt like myself, mm. my full self. Mm. When actually your full self was there all along. All the time. There was just all this conditioning and all this fear and like you say, all this sense of shame. Yeah. I'm not good enough to be myself or like Mm. it's not okay to be who I truly am. Right. Well, I didn't really believe I could walk the line. Right. You you know, and uh, it's, I mean, that's a feeling that that never left. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> and so tell me about when did you start writing? At what point did you it strikes me, you know, you your poetry is really um it's so personal. Yeah. And it's so emotional. And it seems to me as a reader of your work that it's a way for you to sort of really go into those dark, unexplainable parts of yourself and try to make sense of like the person that you are and the life that you're here to live. And I wonder at what point did that come in for you? Was that also mm. during your teenage years when we first start to maybe ask some of those bigger existential questions like who am I, why am I here, you know? No, I'm such a lucky person actually because I had that, I was given that um, by my mother. She taught me to read really, really young. Mm. And so I was writing stories and poetry from, I would say, the age of five. Oh, wow. Um, little, because I was brought up in Roald Dahl and Spike Milligan. Oh, yeah, and best. Yeah, <laughs> and what they do is they, they actually talk about really dark, subjects and really meaningful subjects in verse and in prose and they put it into stories and I saw straight away that you can talk about all parts of human nature as part of a poem or a piece of prose and people can be really affected by that mm. and it was it was second nature to me all the time because mm. I was such a you know such a heavy reader mm-hmm. that that writing was just always part of that 
Yeah, right. And I think even in a way those those authors Roald Dahl and sorry who was the other one Spike, Spike Milligan, Milligan yeah. they're sort of they were sort of writing more modern fairy tales right? sure and when you look back at the actual original like you know grim fairy tales <laughs> they're pretty grim they're grim like they're dark <laughs> there's a lot of death there's a lot of shadow there's a lot of quote unquote evil forces mm. at play you know and yet I feel like the role of fairy tales as you say the role of myth which has been about exploring ourselves like our our hidden impulses in many ways has been so sanitized by kind of like dis- the disnification right. yeah. of storytelling you yeah. know yeah and i yeah i wonder if, in a way if now you know more sort of poetry in particular that explores those darker parts is becoming more popular is in a way people kind of like reclaiming or thirsting for that that element of storytelling and myth telling as well yeah, well, I think we always thirst for the truth. Yes. Because if you think of storytelling, like, in its purest form, it's, it, the art of storytelling is to help us feel less alone. Like, somebody else has experienced these things before mm. us, and this is what happens. And it's, you know, it's a, words are a bridge, you know, mm-hmm. a bridge from you to me. This is how I feel, and you can identify with it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder as well, you know, look, thinking about your work and then thinking about... Um, the role or the archetype almost of the the kind of tortured artist (laughs) you know and I think there's sometimes a perception that that sort of like deep emotional work goes hand in hand with substance use yeah I know on the one hand it's like substances you know in the olden days it was like (laughs) opium right and then it's like alcohol and we even think about you know artists like Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse Mm. and there's this kind of romanticized idea that these substances that ultimately killed them were an integral part of them accessing those kind of like dark places that were so much part of their work and so Mm. healing for people who experienced their work um, and then on the other hand, that there's this idea of people who are perhaps more sensitive and that's why they're artists. Yeah. Are feeling so much pain or so sensitive to the pain of the yeah, world that sure. they need these substances. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that kind of archetype of the tortured artist well I think what we forget is that those you know people like Kurt Cobain and and Amy Winehouse they they were brilliant anyway Mm. you know I think we forget that um, they they were and I think to be an artist who comments on the world and and the state of our hearts you are as a sensitive being anyway and so sensitive you're you're porous Mm. you know you, you you may be empathic you know, you may be carrying things that, that are not, not all yours. Mm-hmm. You may be um, afraid about the world or, or, or worried about things that, that not everybody worries about. And so I think there is, there is some of that. And then also, you know, personal trauma, um, personal histories, they, they, they affect us all differently and we, we carry them differently. And there is a shield that perhaps substances do, do, do offer. Mm. Um, you know, that feeling of being high, the feeling of being drunk makes things, I think, pe- for, for some people, feel a lot, a lot more bearable. Mm. Well, they're an- I mean, alcohol in its, in its pure form is an anesthetic. I mean, it used yeah. to be used in surgery as right. an anesthetic. So it stops, it's a way to stop us feeling on a really surface yeah it's like putting on a padded coat you know and just being like oh I'm safe and warm yeah 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 but I also think it's a a dangerous I I get asked this a lot as well on on Instagram and you know if if you have to suffer for your art you know does it have to do you have to be like in love and you know it's all painful and terrible no I don't think that at all yeah I actually feel a lot more productive um 
and I feel like I make better work when I'm better. Huh, that's really I do, I, yeah, I really do. Um, because, you know, I'm up in the morning and, you know, up with the sun and then I can write and then I feel good about myself because I have written. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know that the other thing quite works for me you can mm. have brilliant bursts maybe mm. but if you, what you want is like longevity and consistency mm. and, and I speak completely for myself because mm. perhaps some people are brilliant at you know doing these things mm. half cut and you know waking <laughs> up with the hangover but for me it's not consistent enough so yeah. I had to to do things the other way yeah and so let's go so going back to your kind of early teenage mm-hmm. experiments or experiences with alcohol how did that sort of um develop as you matured into a young woman and sort of gained more autonomy over your life and you know how, how did your how did your drinking and other substance use I suppose sort of develop over the years well all that happened is you experience I mean your brain is gonna it's gonna lock on to the thing that makes you feel better and you're gonna just want to do more of it so when I saw that particularly traumatic events felt felt further from me or I, I didn't have this intense intense social anxiety mm-hmm. you know that I always kind of had or I didn't have the self-consciousness you know I was I, I was hooked because mm-hmm. I thought that 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 that, that that those things were in the way of me um, being the, the 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 best and the most powerful version of myself. So mm. I always felt, um, from especially from late teens to early twenties, that just taking that taking away the the fear of people, mm. um, the fear of what what people think, or the fear of of, of, of making some mistakes would 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 help me. And, and in some ways, it did for a while. Uh, and that's the thing. I mean, people wouldn't continue doing the, these things if they didn't feel better. And and yeah, I, I, I you know sometimes I felt so 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 powerful. And so all that happened was you know I loved wine, booze, whiskey, whatever you know. And I I, I felt though that those I felt that alcohol was was like a really really close friend. Yeah, yeah. As as I think you've described the journey that you know many of us. Mm-hmm. are on mm-hmm. you know we discover that alcohol does something very specific for us yeah whether it's helping us fit in I think the thing you said about not feeling judged by others or not being aware of the judgment mm. of others is like a huge piece yeah. in terms of people feeling inhibited in their lives because they're actually paralyzed by fear of what other people are going to think about what they truly have to say or really want to do with their lives I think that's a huge one um, and so what point did it start to feel like it was no longer your friend and that perhaps it was, or if it was, a, mm. if it was a friend, perhaps it wasn't a particularly like fun friend or a particularly, um, helpful or loving friend. <laughs> right. Well, let's, I mean, hangovers are terrible. Okay. Yeah. No, hangovers <laughs> are horrible. But what, what happened with me as well, my hangovers felt, they didn't just feel like, oh, you know, I want to, I want to be in bed for for half a day I felt faint I felt mm. you know anxious or mm. you know oh did I say this thing and if you're already socially anxious mm. or you you have that then you actually just compound that feeling you just you just save it for the next day and then it's it's it, it's it's larger because you were you know you're altered by the alcohol so you think and and I will say this as well I don't know if this is the case I know it's not the case for everyone because I would we would compare notes 
but I, I have memory lapses and I really, and it wouldn't be on a lot of alcohol. It would only take like a couple, but I, my memory just of the, the night before, I would have holes in my memory mm. and just the anxiety of that mm. and, and, and not, not quite knowing was, mm. I mean, I mean the, that, that's not friendly. No. So there was that, and then there was just feeling so ill, you know, yeah. so dehydrated. Yeah. The next day you want to eat everything that, yeah. you know, everything possible, things you don't usually eat. And I, I, I think I wanted more control. Yeah. I, I wanted more control over it. And I also didn't want to feel like the drink was freeing me. Mm. I wanted to find those things in myself because I've always had this awareness that it's not... The booze, it's you. Yeah. Whatever you do, if you make a joke and people laugh, yeah. or if you, you, know, you, you, you do a great reading or do your poetry, or that's there already. Mm. It's not, you didn't find it in the alcohol. All that happened was you felt, you felt, more, you felt more free mm. until mm. you let that come out. Mm. So I wanted to find a way to, to get to that. Mm. without that mm. because because getting there just became increasingly harder mm. so you you know the thing that, mm. that that takes you to the feeling that takes you two drinks to get eventually is going to be at the end of two bottles of wine instead of half a bottle of wine and unfortunately that that that's what happened and you know as I was going through my 20s I just thought oh this is a lot I mean, surely it it's taking have to be that. so much more than right. it's giving you, right? Yeah. There comes a point when that t- scale tips. Sure. I think and most people who are listening to this and are sober curious will probably have reached that point. Yeah, it's it's giving me something, or I wouldn't be doing it. But it's taking so much it's more. And so is this much. a fair exchange anymore? You know? Yeah, and the same fear that I was trying to eliminate would mm. be there waiting for me mm. and, and you think, know even in the moment yeah. of drunkenness that it's there waiting you for you you do you do <laughs> and you, you know and, and and i will say this as well the, the you know the the, the strange like the paradox of it was the the feeling just got higher and higher and you know the craziness um while you drink and you and it feels so amazing but then it's First of all, it's so it's it, it's it's so easily like gone, easily spent, mm. and then you spend you know the next week worrying about it. Yeah, or you can't even remember. Oh, it. You, oh, you can't remember. You don't know. Yeah. So there are a few things I'd love to sort of pick, go back to that that blackouts piece. Now, I I very rarely experience blackouts, but mm-hmm. I know a lot of people do, and mm-hmm. I wonder what your you know I talk about the different sort of theories, scientific and spiritual around why we have blackouts mm. in, in Sober Curious. You know, the, the scientific being that actually alcohol disables the part of our brain that forms short-term memories. Right. So we're actually unable to form short-term memories when we've imbibed a certain level of alcohol. Um, and then the more spiritual piece is, well, some people, there are some theories that actually parts of our soul sort of leave our body and go off and have other adventures on their own. Yeah. Or there are even kind of, you know, spirits <laughs> that come in and sort of like take over and sort of take control of the of the controls in a way, the control panel and are steering the ship and we're kind of just, we just become their puppet in those yeah. moments. And I wonder if you have any theories about like, where we go in those blackout moments and what actually happens. I do, I have several theories about this. Oh, good. First of all, I do think that some um, parts of your spirit get disconnected. I I definitely believe that parts of my spirit were like, we are not not staying for this. Bye. Bye, you're on your own now. We are not staying, we're not here for this. So I think there's that. Hmm, what do I think about the... I think I think some other I think something 
something else might join you for example yeah. I mean it's not all bad I mean I've, I've had some abilities I, I'm sure while I've been like, under the influence that I don't have in everyday life I'm sure I dance much better and I don't think I just think I do I think I actually dance dance better um, and now I'm I having to I would challenge relearn. that I would challenge that because I thought that and it was only when I gave myself full permission to really go for it on a dance floor without alcohol that I realised I just have so much more control yeah. over my fun- my physical body when sure. I'm not drunk. If I can if I can disable my inhibitions enough on my own to really move, I'm so much of a freer and right. dancer, and I'm so much more into the music because I can actually feel the music fully in my body when yeah. I'm dancing sober I would challenge you come to my sober curious retreat we're going to oh, be doing yeah, a, no, a sober I dance session <laughs> the thing is I've never had a problem because I was brought up and on on dancing so I right. feel comfortable da- dancing but there was I don't know some moves that I do you know what maybe if I was to look at them now you'd be like I'd be like oh, that, that's that's, just that's horrible maybe felt like yeah it. you actually could not you were doing like crazy things there so so I'm not sure I do think I, I believe everything's spiritual, so I, I do mm. think there's there are spiritual shifts. Mm. Um, there are parts of you that, that that leave and parts of you that stay, mm. and I think for good reason because you mm. know we use different parts of ourselves to to do different things. Even the part of you that writes in the morning is different to the part of you that you know does different that does a meet and greet or mm. you know is in service to, mm-hmm. to another person. So mm. yeah, I think that a lot happens. And I don't think that, I certainly don't think that drinking is bad. It just isn't good for me. Yeah, right. Well, that kind of leads into the next point I wanted to pick up on. You mentioned that sort of in your, during your drinking history, and again, as most people will be familiar with this, it took more increasing volumes. Yeah, to have for the sure. same effect. For sure. And also, before we got on the recording, you were sharing how you were one of those drinkers where one or two, one drink was never enough. If it was going to be one, it was going to be 10 Mm -hmm. because you're drinking to get drunk, not drinking to like get a mild buzz and enjoy the taste of wine. Well, drinking for the feeling because you never, I I never really wanted to because for me, drunk was like, is like when I think of drunk, I think of beyond the the level of control that Mm. that I would have wanted. But unfortunately you get there because you're trying to, to chase the, the that initial uh, first buzz yeah and you know that can that can feel like it, it can feel it can evade you is yes. like yeah is what I want to say that yes. can evade you definitely. because ultimately you're chasing a memory of an experience you once had right. that felt great yeah and because you you feel completely well I'll speak for myself I feel completely different most days right like and right. learning and coming to accept that has been a big part of my own sober journey like not getting freaked out if I feel really different from one day to the next so I think yeah when you're chasing a feeling you're chasing a feeling you remember from years ago yeah that's actually you're chasing a memory you're chasing something that doesn't never even existed in the first place in a way and also something that may not be how you remember it as well because memory is not an exact exactly certainly not yeah well my I guess a part my part of my question was do you know there's a night there's a theory that alcoholism alcohol dependency or problem drinking is genetic and knowing what you know about your father Mm -hmm. I'm wondering have you ever given much thought to whether it's something in your genetic makeup that led you to drink 
oh in absolutely such a, a absolutely way that you did. just like just like you know you have um ancestral um uh, trauma in in, in mm-hmm. dna and mm-hmm. some people i mean we the, the the studies are all there mm-hmm. i think lots of things can be passed down and that's mm-hmm. everything from that that can be anything mm-hmm. from you know addictions to you know certain gifts that we mm-hmm. have i think it's all there it's all some it's all coding it's mm-hmm. all I, I don't think you necessarily have to have to um, allow that to happen Mm. Uh, but there is I guess a journey of of first experiencing it Mm. and then deciding what what you're going to do with that Mm. with with that you know with that coding with that with that DNA yeah with Um, the inheritance with the inheritance yeah Yeah. you know inheritance is there's so much light and shade in that in inheritance some of it's really beautiful and some of it's really difficult and it's interesting that you can share this even though you say you never met your father. And mm. I didn't know this about before we met today. Mm-hmm. But I was looking at this poem skill that you shared mm-hmm. on Instagram. Not recently, I'm going to read it. <laughs> and you say, I am my own father, but that wasn't always clear. I had to learn my duties fast. It wasn't easy. I got some lines on my face. I got the bat- I battle with the booze. I look prettier than I am, but there's a talent to that which I, I love. I relate to that so much myself, even though we have yeah. completely different backgrounds. And realising how much of my journey with alcohol has been a reflection of my father's journey with alcohol mm-hmm. too, you know, and just coming to a place of clarity where I can really see that and begin to integrate that into my story going forwards has been yeah. really... It's felt like a puzzle piece kind of fitting in place. You yeah, know? yeah. Do you feel that way? Absolutely, and... The- if you think that you have the whole picture and then some years go by and we develop even more into to who we are or we change, you know, same thing. And then the, there are more, more pieces emerge and you think, God, I'm actually really grateful for all these all, all these parts because they mm. inform other parts or they mm. help me to, to go out and do the, the job that I do. And it's actually all very necessary. Even this journey with alcohol, I feel I would be a different person if, let's say, I never had a drink. Yeah. I don't think I'd be able to relate to as many people yeah. in the way that I can. You know, I'm definitely yeah. not saying that you need that, but I'm talking about in my life, every little thing that has happened has has helped me. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's, you know, that's the, that is the definition of living an examined life, which right. is part of what your work as a very professional writer is kind of about. You examining your life and the depth that you have helps and gives other people permission to do the same you know yeah yeah no I like that I like that it can be used in some way I don't think anything's a waste you know yeah oh hell yeah Mm. I'm absolutely there with you I'm wondering was there a sort of was there a tipping point like a moment or what might be called a rock bottom where you just were like that's it the door is closing because like Mm. you said when I first over the past two years when I was you know there were some interviews where you were talking about drinking and the role it played and then some where you were talking about it being sort of feeling problematic was was there a that's it. You know, um, there was no rock bottom that led me to to decide, like, no, no more. Um, well, that's what I initially thought, mm. OK? I initially thought, oh, no, there's no rock bottom. Mm. I just came to it, you know, I had a, a night out on the town and then the next day I was like, there must be more than this. But when I examined it, I found that there were plenty of rock bottoms, I just wasn't ready to do anything about it. Right. But, uh, you know, I've had my, my, my extreme low points. and um, But at the time, you know, you've got to be ready. 
And not necessarily ready in the sense that you're like, right, I absolutely know, because you don't know, right? You just, you, you just say, oh, I'm not going to take a drink for today, I'm not going to take a drink for the next day. Um, but there, there are certainly times when you, when you do feel at your, your lowest and then you go and, and do it again, yeah. um, which is okay. That's part of the journey yeah, as well. Exactly. And I think as well in a society where heavy alcohol abuse and mm-hmm. actual problem drinking is completely normalised. So I mean, that's, normal. that's like normal drinking, particularly again in the UK where I do feel like binge drinking is probably a bigger thing. Although it's interesting because I've been sober curious and largely sober since in my whole time that I've been in the US, so I have a really yeah. different perspective. Oh, but it could be that right. people drink as much here. I'm just not really hmm. in a part of that scene here, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember my first year of being in the States, I, w- I was drinking. And is there a difference? The only difference I noticed, much to my oh, absolute, absolute like delight, that the, <laughs> the measures are, are much bigger here. So when I, when I wanted my whiskey at the bar, I came back, I was like, this is great. great. That's like four yeah. in one. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> well, I really noticed spirits are a lot cheaper here. Right. Whereas... Yeah, you'd pay the same for a glass of wine here as you would for a martini, mm. whereas you're obviously getting a lot more drunk off a martini. And so I, th- I see people drinking more spirits here, yeah. and it's more of a kind of a hard and fast. And I wonder, in a way, if that's why people are having to drink two bottles of wine or ten pints to get drunk in the UK. <laughs> so you yeah. think more about binge drinking as like the number of drinks, not the potency of the that's, drink. Do you know what true. I mean? That's true. That's very true. Yeah. But yeah, my point, the yeah. original point being... Looking back on my own journey, I can see that there were several rock bottoms. Mm. Like the time I almost like was a hair's breadth away from a car accident after wow. I was drinking. You know, I'd, been, I'd only had a couple of glasses of wine, but I was driving and shouldn't have been driving, obviously. And that, looking back, I'm like, that could be classed a rock bottom. But at the time, it was just like one other like scary incident of many, you know? Yeah. I, I think as well... I think the thing that frightened me about some of the behaviour was not was was actually where it evolved. It, sorry, it was actually where it involved other people, and mm. so the decisions I made were not as careful as the decisions that I I make as as me. You mm. know, in it, how how I am in the world and and who I want to be, and just some of the carelessness that. You know, if I if I ask people, they might say, oh, you know, it's no big deal. You know, you'd had a few or whatever. But it's just not... If you know that something isn't you, yeah. I think that that's it's, it's quite sobering. <laughs> <laughs> when you, you know, you, you, you wake up, you think about it later on in the week and you think, well, if it wasn't for the alcohol, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, right. And that, and, and that said a lot to me. And that, you know, that, that kind of thing means a lot to me. Yeah. And in that sense, you know, you spoke in the beginning about how alcohol felt like it made you more you. Mm. And it seems like, again, this the switch sort of flicked right. to actually alcohol making you less the person that you actually Indeed. know yourself to be and that you want to be in the world. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So you also shared that you have been, you know, you, you've, you've got sober with the help of a 12-step program. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what you have found most valuable about going that route 
Well, I think there are so many ways to do it, first mm. of all. I think that, you know, everybody is different and your sobriety certainly doesn't need to look like anyone else's. And mm. um, the thing that I think is really, really cool about 12-step programs is, you know, I've done my research on them and uh, mm. there's a great sense of community uh, and togetherness. And I think there's always strength in numbers as much as we want to isolate and it's oh, I mean it's so isolation can feel like the most like beautiful drug sometimes you keep I, yourself yeah, I'm so glad you said that yeah you keep yourself apart and <laughs> yeah. you know you think only I am dealing with this and yeah. you know ego 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 and of course that's not true because you're you know you're walking by people who have the same struggles yeah. as you all the time yeah I think that's the beautiful thing about 12 step is you get to connect and listen to other, even when you don't feel like it and you're like oh you get to listen and identify with with other people's stories and you get to see that we are all more alike than not and that for recovery is like for me one of the cornerstones yes you know and being able to connect with other human beings yes you know on, on a spiritual level but also social and friendship even if it's just someone to go to go out with who mm-hmm. is is also going to be drinking you know your fizzy water mm. <laughs> or whatever mm. you want to drink totally and I think you said something so important we are more alike than we're different for sure and I think the kind of work that you do I think poetry or any sort of emotionally um any work that can help us connect emotionally and feel a sense of compassion or empathy is about that as well. Mm. It's about connecting to the part of ourself that doesn't have a physical body and can't be classified because of how we look or what, yeah. you know, how we, where we fit socially, right? There's a part of us all that is the same mm. inside, right? Absolutely. And I think in a way that's one of the things that I, you know, I don't go to meetings and I'm not in a 12-step program, but I know many people who are. And I think one of them, for me, the most valuable things about it as well is that because it's free you get such a cross-section of society interacting together in ways that they probably wouldn't otherwise you know Mm -hmm. it's completely non-hierarchical and non-elitist it's like you've got all walks of life all sharing similar pains similar struggles and I think there's something really incredibly beautiful about that I think as human beings we I mean we have short memories but we we need constant reminding of that mm. that you are not alone as much as you might feel that and we all feel it constantly mm. mm-hmm. but it's not true mm. um, and I think that's the beautiful thing about 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 those those programs mm. and what are your other sort of tools what else oh, has helped you I have and a what are your kind of, yeah what's your kit uh, <laughs> so one thing and I only learned this super recently so you might be one of the first people I'm talking to about it but the the need for structure I didn't mm. realize you need because I've always I, you know I'm an artist right mm. so I get up and every day can be different mm. but what I realized is having those few things that ground you that you do each day that also make you feel good about yourself and for me that's that's meditation have to clear my mind have to just you know listen to my breathing and just concentrate on the here and now for a, a small section of every day so mm. there's that um, I need light. Uh, we were just talking about that before. <laughs> um, green spaces. I mean, mm. it's, it's winter right now, so there's less of that, but that's really important. Um, and and then what I put in my body. So that's constant, yeah. the drinking water constantly. Yeah. You just, ha- you know, the, these things that seem, everybody talks about, but they, they feed your organs. Mm. They help your brain, um, you know, be at its optimum. Mm. And 
it's it's almost impossible to kind of, to kind of feel better without without those things, mm-hmm. you know. And and just just other small things like um, one of the things I did uh, recently as well was just make sure to check my levels. Did I my vitamin D was like all the way down on the fl- on the floor, so I had to sort that out. But but those things can make you feel terrible, and you can. cannot realize that, yeah. that those are the things and you think you, you may think it's something you may think it's it's depression and sometimes yes. it, it's it's your levels you know that are that are, that are helping to make you feel yeah. a particular particular brand of awful so <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 those things as well so in the toolkit is just paying attention to those things and, and being gentle with myself those are, are the main things because I have noticed that when I let those things slip I don't feel as good and this, it sounds so obvious, but these are the things that get me through. Yeah, because then when you don't feel as good, what do you think about reaching for to make yourself feel right. better? That trusty old friend. The trusty just, old frenemy. Yeah. <laughs> frenemy, exactly. It is such a frenemy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm wondering as well how, how it's impacted your social life. Um, you know, have you felt that your has have you felt that changing and I guess it's interesting yeah. you, you know you've moved you're possibly in a in a place that I found myself you know moving to a different country mm-hmm. you sort of you have the opportunity to have something of a clean slate when it comes to the people that you're spending most of your time with and I'm wondering how how it's impacted that well, part of your life as well well a lot of my friends are, are over here sort of know me Great. for a while <laughs> but you know the, the most hilarious thing is that I did worry initially, and I thought, oh, no, now I'm going to be, you know, one of these people that are just, you know, in bed at 8 o'clock and everything's, everything's ended. I actually realised that I was the only one, a lot of the time, I was the only one that's like, let's go out and do, you know, drink. And, and people generally that I, in my circles, drank less than me. Right. So all that, nothing happened. There was no difference. Right. You know, I was probably just like everybody else. And, you know, I go out with, with friends who drink and, you know, some people drink less, some people drink more. And it doesn't, I just enjoy my time with them. It doesn't affect me at all. Mm. Um and and so not it wasn't what I what I made it out to be in my head, but I think that a lot of a lot of our biggest problems are, are ego dri- driven, and you you think things are about you, and you think that things are going to be so awful, and everyone's going to you know reject you, or every, everyone's going to mm. think this about you, and no one cares mm. because they've got their own stuff going on. Mm. So that was one, you know, that kind of humility was was something that I, I really only kind of grasped. In 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 sobriety, is that we're we're all going through similar things, and people are are largely like concerned with themselves so and true. worried about themselves and how they are perceived. Yes. So so just to do your thing and, yeah. and not to worry about that. I wonder how much coming more into the public eye impacted this journey. Like, there's something about mm. it's an idea I'm really sort of playing with as well recently, and just my own experience of being an who has to have a platform and like being mm. a and I hate the term like public figure it's just something I never envisaged for myself and there's been a huge amount of discomfort for me and kind of like right. finding myself in that role to an extent not as much as you but um I'm wondering if that because it, it seems like this happened this shift happened during that period where you were becoming more known hmm, did yeah. you feel not necessarily like feel a responsibility to like but I wondered if there was something about I'm if it, if it made you more aware of that ego at play 
the, the egos need to be perceived a certain way and, the, and and whether that kind of impacted you know I'm not I'm not sure I, I spent I mean certainly the touring the first with the, the first two books mm. um it, I mean, you know what the tour's like. You're here, then you're here, then you're here, then you're here. And, you know, it was great with the wine because I was like, oh, you know, yeah, I've right. got to go and uh, do the, the reading and then you want, and then you, you do the signing. And you've got to be sociable and, and buzzy right. and everyone wants to chat and you've got to need to perform in a way. Perform, yeah. and, and, and you want to be present. You, you want to be present even at the signing. Just, some of the signings are super, super long mm. and you want to... To have that moment with people when they're, when they're talking talking to you about what they what they experience of the book, and you do want to be there. But one thing I've learned is that you you also have to be really gentle with your with yourself and know when you're tired. Yeah. And I didn't used to have that switch, so the alcohol was great because it, yeah. if, if I was really really tired, it would cover it. But now you just have to be be a parent to yourself and really care about yourself and say, okay, like. I've only got this amount of time, and this is this is this is what I can do because I've just flown in this morning and I had two hours of sleep, sleep and everything. You, you you don't work yourself too far past what what you can do, and and um, there, there's an element of me and I, probably so many people who do this that's very people pleasing. Mm. So you want people to be happy with the job that you do. You want to connect with every single person, but it's not possible. It's not. So one thing, you know, that I've, in answer to your question, yeah, I've, I, f- I find that in those situations that, you know, a different approach is needed. Um, but certainly I, I don't know if it's to do with being in the public eye. I guess my point was sort of like... Going through that journey with my, myself, mm-hmm. with having quite personal books out myself, yeah, it made me really th- think about who am who am I? Like, sure. what do I value? What do I stand for? Like, yeah. how am I presenting in the world? And I think that's part of the journey of like, well, what what role does this substance play in <laughs> the role that I'm performing, even in my personal life? Do you know what I, I mean? Understand. Yeah. Oh, I didn't care. I was at my all my book tours with the, with all the wine and whiskey in my hand, just being like, <laughs> you know, I, I was just yeah. I, I was, couldn't really do that with sober curious. No. Oh yeah, gonna, <laughs> gonna work. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, I think exactly. She's fallen off the wagon. <laughs> But certainly, especially, it kind of went, a lot of the poet poems yeah. were so, you know, they're about love and sex yeah. and like alcohol. So it was, you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't really matter. And I certainly didn't care you know, mm. at, the, at the time. But, you know, we, we change as well. And mm. just from a um, purely practical point of view as well, there are only so many hours in the day. Yeah. And then, so as you, as you do, as, as I do, you know, produce more work and I'm out more in the world, I want to be awake and yeah. not, you know, yeah, able to do it. Yeah, so that helps. Yeah, it definitely helps. I want the energy. I yeah. really noticed as well, and part of it has been about you know having a bigger Instagram following mm. and having books out and things. How I have a rampant addiction to validation. Right. Um, and so come now, now that I have a clear head and I'm not um, in any kind of addictive relationship with alcohol, I'm able to see the other places where that. Need that kind of craving gets yeah. triggered in me, yeah, and it definitely happens around Instagram. Mm-hmm. It definitely happens around like book reviews, like all those things. And I think you, I've noticed that you've spoken as well about addiction to prettiness, mm. which I think is a really good one that never gets spoken about. It really doesn't. Oh my god, 
Right. But I'd love if you could share a bit about other addictions that you might have noticed in yourself oh. and like how this kind of social media world that we're in feeds them and actually actually uses them against us sometimes as well. Where do I begin <laughs> with the list of addictions? Oh, so, you know, God. It, but it's it's hmm. The, the validation, the, the need for love and validation, I think, is in all of us. Yeah, right. Uh, because it, it can come from so many things and not having enough as a child, you know, things happening in the, the home, trauma, yeah. and all of those things that leave you wanting and leave you with a void that you're going to fill in, and it can be in a variety of ways. Uh, and yeah, I notice things all the time, even with eating clean, as I mm. do, and and my, you know, I can I can get really really far into anything I bought a Vitamix at the moment this is my <laughs> is my prized possession I'm like oh my god you know what can I and and you know this, this is pretty what harmless can what can I blitz you know what's the greenest no I can't what's just the greenest, have the most what's nutrients the greenest, greenest juice and you know I can be on on a, a site for ages being like yeah but no if I have the maca powder and the you know the collagen and and then it gets it gets beyond the joke because then I've gone and I've bought like packs and packs and packs of stuff to, you know to get this new nutrition and really you only needed like two or three mm-hmm. so there's there are things like that which are they're f- fairly harmless but also I mean anything can be done to excess yes, right right and and with the prettiness mm. um I talk about that a lot a lot in my book with um, the book the terrible mm. and it was something that as I was brought up I, I told you I was the only um black girl in a white town mm. I felt very different straight away and when I was a kid I, I developed this obsession with 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 this quite European standard of, of beauty that's, you know, forced down everyone's throat, especially yeah. at that time. Yeah. You know, everybody on the TV was was a certain size, was white, long hair, blonde, you know, and as a child, that's even in, in fairy tale books. Yeah. So that was for the Disney version. The Disney yeah. version. Yeah, yeah, not the grim. Not the grim, not I the don't grim. think so much. <laughs> but that... I didn't realise, but that that was was such a huge part of me feeling like that was the reason that certain other things were happening. And there was a lot happening, you know, um, with right. with death, with with having to move um, from place to place, with with being raised by my grandparents, with the just a lot a, yeah. a lot of things that were happening. And the only thing that I saw was was different to my my friends was was that we we were. A black family. Yeah. So um, you thought that that was why these things were happening, or that that yeah, was, must but, be a part of like. But, the... Yeah, but not only skin color. The fact that I was uh, like twice the height of everybody, and and I developed so early, and just all the all of these differences. So so that became that became really really important to me. The idea of of appearance or altering appearance or or things being better if only I looked like this, and that didn't leave. And then when I was a te- um, teenager, well, actually later on, I became a model, which was not, you know... <laughs> the irony. That, well, not the irony, but yeah, you were like almost working towards that ultimate You're working towards the ultimate. And then even yeah. when I was there, I thought, no, but it's not right because, you know, there'd be more jobs if, if only for this, this, this mm, and this. Mm. And again, it's the feeling that it's, you're not enough. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, but it's huge, and it's. It's. Hu- I mean, I mean, who doesn't deal with that? It's huge and it's insidious, and obviously Very. there are different levels, and depending how you present physically, you'll kind of like be influenced right. in different ways. But I feel I've had similar experiences, even though I look 
so much more like that ideal. It's almost like, well, if I just tweak this or if mm. I just learn how to do this, then I'm there, you know? It's so, yeah. so close, it almost becomes like even more tantalizing in a way. Right, and we see, we see prime examples, well, there are so many examples that you're, you're never, nobody ever thinks they're there mm. because there's always something exactly. they want to tweak exactly. and change. Exactly. So how, do you, how are you managing that one? Like it's, do you find yourself consciously disrupting? It's interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm ex- working, going on a journey this year to accept my natural curly hair. Yeah. And today I actually experimented with rollers for the first time because I was like, I don't want to do heat styling. I kind of want curls, but I still want smooth hair. <laughs> like yeah. it's so ingrained. I've, there's so, such incredible discomfort around kinky hair. As, this is strange, as, and I can't isn't believe it? I'm speaking to a black woman about this because obviously that's like hugely and very politicized as well along yeah. racial lines. But it's such a like such an, a discomfort and such a feeling of shame that's triggered there. I'm amazed actually at how deep it is. It, it's, it is strange, and I remember when it was a real thing. I mean, it's so different now because I mean I. I, I love you see I wear my hair yeah it looks amazing natural afro <laughs> and I, I I love this I wouldn't have it any other way and I, I don't be I don't alter the texture of my mm. hair but that's yeah that's so different to how it was 20 years ago yeah. and even but but we see how insidious media and everything was because now you see people with all types of um, hair and, and gender expression yeah. and, and skin tone. And yeah. It's just different. There's just more yeah. diversity. And there that is. diversity allows people to see themselves. And it's, it's just a, it's a different world in, in terms of that. Which is one of the great things about social media. And that's something Which I is. talk about in my first book. If you yeah. really choose to curate what you consume there, it can actually be very empowering mm-hmm. when it comes to appearance and identity, I think. But when you allow the, it's more like when you allow the external messages to to be louder than that. It's easy to get sucked back into that spiral of I have to look a certain way to be accepted. And that's why when we go back to the the toolkit yeah. and the idea of, of of spiritual fitness, because yeah. it the that that really does help you develop like a a force field around around yourself. And so it's not as easy for those things to get to get in if. If the other, like, quite the seemingly yeah. smaller things are taken care exactly. of, you just don't, don't care as much. Yeah. Because you feel more rooted in yourself. You yeah. feel more grounded. And it does, it changes things because, and it sounds like a cliche, but, like, the, the self-love is the thing that that kind, kind of can completely... It becomes like a force field, doesn't it? It does. It to all of that external stuff, because you're like, oh, I don't believe that, because I actually feel great as yeah, I am. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks anyway. Yeah, and, it's, it's, <laughs> and so, then some of it can actually, something that would really have affected you like a few years ago, you, you'd laugh at, or, yeah. you, you, or you just wouldn't even see it. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't even notice it. Yeah. It wouldn't have the same hook into you. Right. Um, there's a quote that I love. And it's actually on your Wikipedia page. Oh, <laughs> you did my journalistic duty. Oh, oh my God, what is it? <laughs> and you have, and you said, if you're afraid to write it, that's a good sign. I suppose you know you're writing the truth when you're terrified. Mm. And I think um, I'd love to hear you sort of like speak a bit more to that, like the the feeling, the fear, and doing it anyway. I suppose as actually a part, an essential part of our, our growth mm. and evolution, and an essential part of recovery as well. Yeah. Well, every single time that I've done anything that I, has, has taken me to, to a place that I'm really proud of or, you know, has, has changed me, has been on the other side of, of, of something I perceive to be, to, be fear, to be scary. 
and particularly telling certain aspects of my story I mean there was a lot of it in the terrible I never thought that I would would come out and and, and talk about some of the things that are in there but after that I just felt fearless because there was right. there was nothing, nothing there's to nothing hide. to to hide and nothing to fear and there's something about speaking your truth that does make you invincible it does mm. because mm. nobody uh, can nobody can do anything with it I mean that's all perceived yeah right why are we so afraid of the truth then I think because it allows you know it, it there's transparency and it it takes you know the veneers that we all get so used to you know producing you know and, and the putting together are then shattered mm. and you you get to be this, this like real vulnerable human being mm. and and you know that's there's, there's certain aspects where where that's that's it's hard it's still hard for us you know in mm. different in, in different um circumstances um but they're so rewarding as well mm. Because it's freeing, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, it really, really is. I'm going to have to read The Terrible now. Oh, I wish I'd brought one for you. I wish I'd I'll buy one. one. I'll support, support you. As, an art, as a fellow artist, I'll buy one and support Oh, you have to work. sign. I brought the book so you can sign it for oh, me. Oh, brilliant. Put, yeah. um, final question, actually. Mm-hmm. Why did you call your memoir The Terrible? I call my memoir The Terrible. It was actually tongue-in-cheek and not... Because for me, the terrible is is that thing that runs alongside you that if you don't pay attention to, will just eventually keep tripping you up. And the terrible can be like it can be a cacophony of things. So it can be grief, loneliness, despair, you know, addiction, feelings of being unworthy, um, all of the anxiety. Mm. Uh, did I say depression? Depression. Mm. Um, all of those things that that exists and can be used for for the greater good and can be used to to reach out if you know what to do with them and if you if you kind of embrace them so in the book I talk about the, the terrible actually being a, a kind of friend mm. you know not something to be to to be hidden from not something to be hidden away it's something that if we make peace with and we are able to talk about it can be really really powerful mm. and, and that's what it means I love it I'm happy to. I'm happy I asked you because I, oh, I think so it's right. such a brilliant title. I'm kind of obsessed with titles, and I love that one. So, thank you. Thank Thanks you. so much for coming oh, on. It's, it's been, been wonderful to meet you finally. <laughs> <laughs> And thank you, as always, for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can DM me on Instagram if you have any specific feedback or to let me know about a topic you would like me to cover. And if you feel called, you can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find this series. It really does help. The Sober Curious podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.